started this study uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, James is a book of practicality, talks about living out our faith. And what we're going to discover tonight as we go through this, this particular chapter, it's one thing to talk about the word. It's one thing to sing about the word. Uh, it's one thing to preach about it, discuss it, and meditate on it. But it's a whole different ball game to become a doer of the word. And that's what God is wanting from each one of us to become doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen. So would you bow me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you and lift you up and praise you. Give you the glory and the majesty for this day. As we prepare to share your word, I ask you, God, to give us revelation knowledge from on high that we will speak your truths into these your people. In Jesus name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. All right. All right. So let's go to uh, James chapter number two, verse number one. And we'll, we'll look at it from the New Living Translation and also be referring back to the uh, King James Version. But James, uh, James chapter two, verse number one from the NLT. Will you read along with me? The text says what? My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? All right. Look at verse two. It says what? For example... Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Verse three, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Verse number five, let's read. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom? He promised to those who love him. Verse six, let's read. But you dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Verse seven, let's read. Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Verse eight, let's go. Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbors as yourself. Nine and ten. Let's go. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. Read that again. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. Verse 10. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's law. Okay. All right. So let's, let's jump into uh, the meat of this particular chapter here. And you should have an outline uh, before you. Uh, if not, uh, raise your hand and I think one of the ushers will get one to you. But it's, uh, this, in, this, in this second chapter uh, of the book of James, the writer begins to let us know that not only is the mature Christian patient in testing which we found out last the last two weeks when we were dealing with chapter number one. Not only is he patient in testing, but he also practiced the truth. I submit to you that I believe one of the problems that the church has today, and I believe one of the reasons why many churches are ineffective in advancing kingdom principle is because we have too many immature believers in the church. I'm not saying that people aren't born again, but you could have had a born again experience, but have not matured in your faith. 
And your effectiveness as a believer will be stunted because of your immaturity in Christ, because of the baby state that many Christians find themselves in. Do you recall when we did the study on the book of 1 Corinthians, the scandalous series, we walked down through that book and what we understood in studying Corinthians is that Paul said, you guys are spiritual babies. He says, you guys are acting like babies. You're, 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 there's discord, there's fussing, there's fighting, there's uh, you know, getting upset over trivial things. And as a result, Paul says, I can't talk to you about some, some, some a little bit more heavier doctrinal stuff that I want to talk to you about because you cannot bear it because you're still spiritual babies. All right. So anytime you have a church full of babies, you're going to have a church full of mess and you're going to have a church that's not effective in advancing the kingdom principles. One of the things that we talked about in, and we always quote Dr. Tony Evans definition of the kingdom agenda, uh, the kingdom agenda is the visible demonstration of the comprehensive rule of God in every area of your life. A visible demonstration of the comprehensive rule of God in every area of your life. That means a mature Christian allows the word of God to touch every area of his life. A mature Christian allows the word of God to touch his sex life or her sex life. A mature believer allows the word of God to govern how you handle your finances. A mature believer allows the word of God to govern how you do marriage. A mature believer allows the word of God, amen, to govern how you react and respond to people who maybe don't treat you the way uh, you feel like you need to be treated. Or maybe you're in a relationship or you're married and your husband or your wife is not treating you with the respect uh, and, and, and the honor that you deserve as their spouse. So how do you respond to that, amen, will determine whether or not you are walking in kingdom principles or not. But a mature believer will, will know how to do that. And he allows the word of God to judge him and, and to guide him in that process. Okay, Immature people talk about their beliefs, but the mature person lives his faith. Everybody say live in faith. Now, guys, listen to me. Hearing God's word and talking about God's word can never substitute for doing God's word. And that's what James gets to the heart of right here as we study this book. And when you look at what he says, let's let's, let's jump back uh, to verse number one and we'll move down here. okay? because one of the things we're going to see is the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. How many of y'all have ever said this before, heard people say this? Well, you know, I like going to church, but you know, I don't like fooling with church people. Anybody ever been there before? Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to church, Pastor, and I'll, I'll be there. I'll get my tithes and my offering. But, but, you know, when it's time to go, it's time to go, and I don't want to fool with anybody in the church. Well, there's something wrong with that mindset because here's what I would tell you. If God is into people and you are into God, then you're going to be into what God is into. In other words, God loves us. He loved us so much, according to John 3.16, that he, he did what? Gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not what? But have what? So God loved us so much. He loved mankind so much that he sacrificed his only begotten son so that we can have the privilege and the honor to be able to interface with him on a personal level. Correct? 
So if God loved mankind so much that he gave his very best, what makes you think that we can be in God and then don't, don't fool with people? You cannot do it, amen? You cannot please God and you will not be walking, amen, at your highest level of Christian maturity if you withdraw from people. And there are many times people who've been hurt will withdraw and not want to deal with people, particularly in the church. But I I got news for you. Uh, You know, when we look at James here, we're going to see that it's critically important that we understand that People are part of our destiny and they are part of our journey. And the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. Verse one again, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? Look at verse number two again. It says what? For example, suppose someone comes in your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. Another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Now, guys, Watch this now. I want you to hear me carefully. If we're not careful, we will um, treat people differently based on the outward appearance. Okay? Now, when I say treat people different, in other words, if someone comes dressed a certain way, if someone uh, has a certain occupation, all right, Do you talk to the doctor the same way you talk to the custodian? Both of them need Jesus. Amen. See, the doctor can operate on somebody and die and go to hell. And the custodian can clean the floor till you can see your face shining in it and love Jesus and go to heaven. So, but but both of them need Jesus. So we have to get out of this mindset uh, uh, about looking at people based on what they do where they live, what they drive, what their occupation is, uh, you know, where they're from. Those things cannot be a part of our Christian walk. So, again, uh, he says, for example, suppose someone comes in meeting dressed in fancy clothes and and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Verse 3 again, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or else sit uh, on the floor. Well, he says, he says, doesn't this... Discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives. Now, again, when we look at this, uh, look at your outline. The, 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 we say the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. We cannot separate human relationships from divine fellowship. Can we read that out loud and on purpose? Come on, let's go. It says what? We cannot separate human relationships from divine fellowship. We cannot say that we're in fellowship with God and that we're all right with God when we are not all right with people. Okay, hear me carefully. For anybody to think that they can, their relationship with God is okay when they are out of sorts or out of whack with people, harboring unforgiveness in your heart toward people, you are sadly mistaken. Jesus even said that your prayer life will be hindered because you you haven't forgiven somebody who maybe did you wrong. So our relationship with God is closely tied and connected to how we interface and deal with people. So whether you like it or not, you have to learn how to deal deal with people the right way if you're going to have true divine fellowship with God. Y'all with me? 
So I, if I were to poll the audience right now, I could probably get some of y'all to, to tell me uh, the name of one person who you probably, when you see them coming, you don't really want to see them coming. There's somebody who you maybe have dealt with who may have hurt you deeply that you haven't found in your heart to be able to get okay with them. And what I'm telling you is that those kind of relationships uh, need to be dealt with because what they can do is if you don't deal with it the right way, it can cause a block between you and God. All right. Let's read it one more time. It says we cannot separate human relationships from divine fellowship. You cannot be all right with God and not all right with people. Now, when I say that, that doesn't mean that you're going, everybody's going to agree with you. As a matter of fact, some people won't let you get along with them. That's why the Bible says in one, in one spot, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with what? All men. Some people won't let you live peaceably with them. Some people are something else. Do you have those folks in your family? When the family union comes around, oh, Lord, they go Uncle Bill. Y'all know Uncle Bill. Watch out. Just, just don't say nothing. Well, I, I submit to you that I believe that you're in this church because God wants you to engage Uncle Bill at the next family reunion. I believe you're in this church because God wants you to be the catalyst, amen, who plants the seed in Uncle Bill's heart, and Uncle Bill gets saved and transforms his life. And you can't do that running away from Uncle Bill. Are y'all listening to me today? All right, so let's, let's keep moving. So, so when we look at this thing, in this section, uh, James examines four basic Christian doctrines in light of the way we treat other people, okay? Uh, but before we do that, go to 1 John, the fourth chapter, verse number 20. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 20, and we're going to move on down through here, all right? Everybody still, you're still tracking with me, all right? Hallelujah. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, what does the Bible say? That, I didn't even call you a lie. The Bible says you're lying. It says what? That person's a liar. For if we don't love people, we, people we can see, <laughs> how can we love God whom we cannot see? Let's read it again, because I don't want anybody to miss this. Watch this. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister. Now, now stop, stop, stop. John is the writer, and he's writing to the church. This letter is to believers. And notice what he's saying to believers. He's having to warn them. That if you if somebody in your midst says I love God but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? Are y'all still with me? Y'all you following that? So here, how we deal with people is gonna be an indicator of our spiritual maturity and where we stand with God. Okay? Y'all, y'all pack it, track it with me? All right, so 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 the first doctrine he deals with is the deity of Christ, okay? He, he examines four Christian doctrines in light of the way we treat other people. So he talks about the deity of Christ. Um, Jewish people 
in, in the day that this text was written, coveted recognition and they coveted honor and, and they vied with one another for praise from the group. All right. I've always said this, watch out for believers in the church who are always trying to push their way up front or push their way into a position where they can be recognized. Okay, y'all listen to me. Watch out for the person who's always trying to be recognized because there's something inside of them that's missing for them to want to always be up front or to always be the one to have their name called and they get upset if their name is not called or if they're not recognized. I want to know if, let's say for instance, if you cooked all of the food for VBS and you fed everybody, all those 300 people we had coming through every night and I mentioned everybody who helped and participated but forgot to call your name and you fed all those folks all week long. How would you feel? Oh, okay, let's say, I don't want to know how you feel. What would you feel about me? That's the, that's the better question. Because if, if I honestly forgot to call your name and you get upset and want to leave the church because your name was not called, my question is why were you feeding the folk in the first place? Were you doing it so that you could be recognized? Did you agree to take it on all by yourself so you can say, look what I've done? All right? Watch out. Uh, the culture that James was, was writing to and the people of this time, especially the Jewish nation, uh, the people that they, that they coveted recognition. As a matter of fact, go to Luke the 14 chapter right quick. Luke 14 verse number 7. Let's look at something real quickly. Y'all still with me? All right. Watch this. When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, trying to elbow in, get next to the host, come on, uh, uh, in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice because he saw them trying to position themselves. I, I, I laughed. This, I think she's dead and gone now, but this particular lady was coming to an event, uh, it was a, one, a non-profit dinner or a banquet, and, and she walked in, and I think this lady was a member of a, a local school board or whatever, but she sort she of thought highly of herself. And she walked in, the first thing she says, where did the dignitaries sit? <laughs> I kind of laughed, she said, where did the dignitaries sit? <laughs> and, and, and guys, here's what happens a lot of time in churches. Now, of course, we, some of y'all look at this stage and platform. You say, we, won't, we don't wipe the pulpit as we know it out. Uh, but I remember days when there were pre- preachers who were, who were vying to go sit in the pulpit. Because in most Baptist churches, they have a row of chairs behind the pulpit. All right? And guys uh, would like to go and sit in the pulpit. I was never one who liked to go sit in the pulpit because sitting in the pulpit was okay, but I'd rather sit out there and listen to somebody speak to me than be behind them, okay? But, but that was considered to be a place of honor uh, sitting in the pulpit. So these folks here were coming to the banquet, and they were trying to jockey for position. Are you with me? Watch this now. Jockeying for position. He says, when you are invited to a wedding feast, This is Jesus talking. Don't sit in the seat of honor. On the right hand and the left hand. Remember the sons of thunder uh, 
sons of Zebedee, when their mama came and tried to position them for heaven. Jesus, when you get, the, when you get up there, Jesus, remember my boys now. Let one sit on the right hand, let the other sit on the left hand. She was trying to jockey for position. He says, when, you, when you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? All right? What if the chairman of the corporation, what if Bill Gates was invited? Or Warren Buffett? You know, in, 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 in the secular world, when you have banquets or nonprofit dinners, um, people who have money are coveted. Y'all do know that, right? You know why people who have money are coveted? Because they're looked at as a funding source. Now, listen, God don't have a problem with Christians having money. As a matter of fact, my, my prayer is that all of y'all will be rich. In faith and in monetary possessions. Can I get a witness? So God don't have a problem with you having money. If he did have a problem with you having money, then what, what are we going to say about Job? Huh? Who was the richest man in the East? What are we going to say about Moses and others who ultimately had wealth? So God don't have a problem with money. He just don't want the money to have you. Are you with me? God don't have a problem with you having money. He don't want the money to have you. But now watch out what was happening. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? And I always tell our ministers, uh, when you go to a place, don't just go run up in the pulpit and, like in the old day. You know, don't go up and sit in the pulpit because five guys may come out with the pastor and you sit in the seat. They may make you get up and move. It's better to be asked up than to be asked down. Are you with me? Okay. So, so the host will come and say, give this person your seat. Then you will be embarrassed and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Look at the next verse. Come on, let's read. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. In other words, don't come up and sit at the table right there next to the head table. If, you, if your opening is back there by the bathroom or by the kitchen, go on, sit there. And then maybe perhaps the host will come and say, no, y'all come on up here. There's a better spot up here. It's better to be asked than to be asked. All right, gotcha. All right. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. Then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. Next verse, let's read. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is critical, guys, because in the church, what do we realize now? We have people who, who walk in pride and not humility. For those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be what? Exalted. Let God lift you up. Don't lift yourself up. Come on, next verse, 12. Then he turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. All right? Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. People are good about inviting folks who are going to invite them back. People are good about giving gifts to people who are going to give them gifts. How about at Christmas time? Do you get upset if you get somebody a gift and they don't get you one in return? Y'all not going to admit it in here, are you? How many spouses have, uh, okay, spouses, how many of you married folks have 
uh, you, you, you know, it's all about giving, you say, but then you, uh, it's your anniversary. And uh, the wife gets the husband something, but the husband just gives the wife a hug. Everybody say it wouldn't be nice, would it? <laughs> but but watch, don't miss the gist of what he's saying here. God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Don't just invite people who can bless you back with something. What he said is invite those who may don't have anything to give you. He's dealing with the attitude and the mindset of the people, okay? Y'all with me? All right, so let's, let's get back. All right, go back to James right quick. Hallelujah. And, and remember, uh, Jesus even talked about the Pharisees and how um, they would, you know, they would dial in on, on, on meticulous things as it relates to the law, especially in Matthew 23 and 23. He says, you guys, you're, you're tied out of everything, but then you await, you omit the weightier matters of the law, stuff like justice, stuff like, uh, you know, uh, being, being an honorable person, those things that, that really matter, you leave those things out. So, so what, what we see here as we get back to James chapter number two, um, some of the same problems that they had in society back then, I think we have it today. Probably even more so, it's even amplified today. Okay? Um, Jesus, did, Jesus was not a respecter of person. When I say respecter of person, in other words, Jesus did not, even when it comes to us, He's a respecter of faith, but he's not a respecter of person. He doesn't care where you came from. He don't care if you grew up in the Ninth Ward in, uh, in, in, in New Orleans or if you, if you grew up uh, in Southern Trace in Shreveport. It doesn't matter to him. Okay? Where you come from is not as important as where you headed to. Are you tracking with me? God does not look at us and, and, and decide to bless and decide to use us based on where we came from. He, he uses us based on where he's going, where he see us going and where, where he's taking us to. So Jesus was not a respecter of persons. Uh, as a matter of fact, his enemies admitted this in Matthew, um, 22 and 16 from the NIV says, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. That's what they said about Jesus. Our Lord did not look at the outward appearance. He looked at the heart. He was not impressed with riches or social status. Now, we got to be very careful, guys, because it's, it's, it can be somewhat uh, pulling or uh, uh, misleading sometimes when, when we, uh, in society as a whole, tend to honor people who have great wealth and look down on those who have less wealth. And the church cannot afford to do that. I say this all the time, y'all. I sound like a broke record. But what you do out there does not position you necessarily for what you're going to do in here. There, there are some congregations who give deference to the guy who funded the building fund and, and put a million dollars in the building fund. Now, again, if you got a million, a cool million that you want to, you know. Now, we'll take it. As a matter of fact. If, 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 we'll even name the bill and not you. But your giving of that million dollars does not mean that now you have control of the congregation. 
And in some churches, the guy who gives the most controls what goes on in the church. Jesus is in control here. And we are simply his servants. So I respect everybody and we give everybody honor and respect. But your, your occupation out there does not make you more important than here. And some folks can't handle that truth. All right. So, I, you know, as a matter of fact, it's, it's almost to me, it's almost a little bit. It, it, again, God blesses who he blesses. And, and we want whoever whosoever will let him come. Whoever's led to the Lord to be here. We want you to be here. Uh, but but it's almost a little bit. I don't use the word dangerous. It's almost a little bit tedious to have one person who gives 40 percent of the budget. So what happens if that one person who gives 40% of the budget decides he's going to just stop giving to the budget or gets mad and leave or dies? Okay? It'd be better uh, from, and I'm a numbers guy because I, I spent 17 years in banking and one of the things that we would always do when we evaluate churches was we look for a concentration of givers. Does 45% of the budget come from one family? That's not good. As an underwriter of church loans, I didn't like to see when one giver gave that much money. I mean, proportionate to what everybody else gave. Because if something happened to that one giver, then my repayment source would be compromised. Are you following me? So in evaluating churches, we like to see everybody giving something. The banker, that's the banker. As the pastor, I want to see everybody giving something. Are Are you with me? Because, as a matter of fact, that's our responsibility. I want to see everybody giving tithes and offerings. Because I know it works. I know God, amen, will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And so if you had learned that, if you're still sweating over finances, if you're still worried about money, because you can't find it in your heart to trust God based on what his word says, I want to encourage you. It's, 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 it's great to be in a position where you know God's got your back. Because you've trusted him and you've taken him at his word. All right? All right. Can we keep moving? All right. So, so the, the deal to Christ. Jesus, did not, Jesus was not a respecter of persons. Right? In other words, he did not, he did not treat one uh, better because they had money and one worse because they didn't have money. Okay? He saw the potential in the lives of sinners, amen? He saw potential uh, in, in the lives of those who maybe others would have overlooked. The poor widow who gave her one mite was greater in his eyes than the rich Pharisees who boastfully gave a large contribution. Remember the, the, the story when the text says he sat over against the treasury and he observed how they put money in the treasury Jesus sat over and watched the folks giving. Here comes some big dollar folks. Uh, I'm going to give this contribution in the name of my great great grandfather. It's going to be a $300 contribution. And when I give it, I want y'all to clap real loud because I want my name to be recognized. They didn't quite do it that way, but you know, can I just add a little flavor to it? So he, he sat over and watched them come in and give, and they were giving out of their abundance. 
And what they gave, they probably could have gave more. Huh? So you don't ever know the quality of someone giving. You can't base the quality of someone's giving based on the dollar amount. Because the person who gave 10000 maybe could have gave 100000 But in your eyes, because you gave 1000 you think 10000 oh, man, they really gave out of, gave freely and abundantly to the Lord. When actually the tithe was 100000 but they cut it short. And they gave 1% instead of 10%. Is that right? Okay, gotcha. I want to make sure my math is correct. I use round numbers, you know. One. Y'all still missed that, didn't you? Okay. All right. Anyway, Jesus sat over and watched him. And then he says, this woman has given, listen, more than everybody else. It wasn't the dollar amount, but it was the quality of her giving. She gave out of her need. She gave her last and put it in the offering container. And in the eyes of my master, who's the one who, who, who gives back to us, he says, she's giving more than everybody else. Okay? So he was not looking at her, her, her monetary stature as, as, as economically as it, as it relates to how much money she had on her, how much money she made. He said, this woman's giving more than all the rest of them. Her heart was in the right place. Okay? In Simon, Peter, he's, he, he saw a rock. You know, he says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now, Simon Peter was kind of rough and gruff, old fisherman, hard-nosed dude. But God saw something in him. Amen. In Matthew, the public and the tax collectors, tax collectors were despised by their Jewish uh, uh, countrymen. But in Matthew, the tax collector, he saw a faithful disciple who would one day write one of the four Gospels. The disciples were amazed to see Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the sinful woman at the well, the, 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 the Syrophoenician woman, I think it was, who, who um, uh, had had about how many husbands? Five, and the one she was with wasn't hers, right? She was shacking. Here, she, here he is. He sees something in this woman, and so much so that he made such an impression on her that she went and told her, her fellow people in the town, come see a man who's told me everything about myself. He didn't look at that woman and look down on her because she, you know, she'd been married five times and she was shacking with a man. He saw the potential in her. All of us, if we're honest about it, have been saved from something. None of us in here, if we're really honest now, have led such clean lives that, that, that we, we would allow our life to be displayed on these screens. Uh-huh. Some of y'all got some secrets, don't you? Come on. Look, look me in the eye and say, say, Lord, thank you for covering my junk. Let's say it again because some of y'all look at me like, well, you know, uh, uh, Brother Pastor, you know, uh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm talking about that stuff that don't nobody know about but you and him. Ain't then one of y'all talking because both of y'all married. And if, bo- if either one of y'all talk, it would just all blow up. So ain't none of y'all talking, but you thank God he covered you. Yeah, that stuff. Yeah, see, y'all got quiet too then. Mm-hmm. Thank God that he, he sees the potential in us. So, so, so 
But, but you know what? Uh, we're, we're prone to judge people by their past and not their future. We look at what they did and then we, we make judgment and determination about them. You know, Saul of Tarsus uh, would, would, have, would have never become who he was, the Paul of the Bible, had God not saw his potential. He, he was the one, guys, who sat there and while they stoned Stephen to death, Luke, he sat there and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death for preaching the gospel. Yet, on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him, saved him, transformed his life. I'm here to tell you right now, guys, it's not our past, amen, uh, that God looks at and disqualifies us. He looks for toward our future and what he can use us to do in advancing kingdom. Aren't you glad about that? I don't know about you, but I am. Jesus was the friend of sinners. Although he disapproved of their sins, he still, amen, sat down and had uh, dinner with them. Religious Pharisees wouldn't sit down with a tax collector and, and, and have dinner. They wouldn't sit down with a, a, a drunkard and have dinner, but Jesus did because he saw their potential. Jesus was despised and rejected, y'all. Okay? And so, so yet, he is the very glory of God. Amen? And so, the religious experts in Christ's day judged him by their human standards, and they rejected him. In other words, he came from the wrong city. We're Nazareth. You remember, there's, there's a passage that says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth. You know, somebody said that about you. Can any good thing really come from Bendham? Country folk up there. Can any good thing come from Cedar Grove? Can any good thing come from the Cooper Road? Can any good thing come from Queensboro? All they do is over there shoot. Well, maybe, well, baby, you from Queensboro. Anybody from Queensboro? I know Monica is. All right. Uh, anybody here from Moortown? Anybody here from the Cooper Road? That's Mac. Mac Harris from the from the Cooper Road. That's the MLK section of the city. In case y'all didn't know, guys, people, we can't afford to be like the world and make judgments and determination on people based on where they're from, how they look on the outside. Come on, God, Amen, Amen. Doesn't do that, and we shouldn't either. So they reject Jesus because he came from the wrong city, from Nazareth. He was not a graduate from one of their accepted seminary schools. Amen. He didn't have the official approval of the people in power. Amen. His followers were a nondescript mob of, of fishermen and publicans and sinners and people who were not looked, out, looked on very highly. But yet God was moving in his life. He was the very glory of God. Amen. So is, is it any wonder that Jesus warned uh, the religious leader over in John 7 and 24 to stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment, okay? But it's sad to say we oftentimes make the same mistake. All right, so let's, let's, go, let's go to uh, 5 through 7 right quick. Let's look at the grace of God, the grace of God. So, so, so the first, four, first Christian doctrine is the deity of Christ. He's, he, he, Christ uh, is God manifested in the flesh. You know, the script, there's a scripture that says, Great is the mystery of godliness. 
it says that it talks about the fact that God was manifested in the flesh. And that's that's he came in the form of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Look at look at verse five. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom? He promised to those who love him. Six. But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Now, the emphasis here is on God's choosing, and this involves the grace of God. If salvation was, 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 was on the basis of merit, it wouldn't be by grace. So what, what are you saying, preacher? None of us were saved based on how good we are, and we're not being kept saved by good, how good we are right now. It's by grace. Grace implies God's sovereign choice of those who cannot earn and do not deserve his salvation. Are y'all with me today? God saves us completely on the basis of the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary and not because of anything that we are or anything that we have. Amen. See, God ignores national differences. See, the, the, the Jewish believers were shocked when Peter went to the Gentile household of Cornelius and preached to the Gentiles and even ate with them. Uh, uh, the topic of the first church council was, must a Gentile become a Jew to become a Christian? In other words, if you go to Acts 15, chapter, you'll see that discussion there. They were trying to say, well, if, if, he's, if he's a Gentile, in other words, if you are not a, if you are, if your natural lineage was not Jewish, you know, you were not born Jewish by, by birth, you were considered to be a Gentile or a Samaritan, which was half Jew, half Gentile. So when the first the church first got started, there were some in the church who had the audacity to think that the Gentiles couldn't have the same experience that the Jews had. And you know, one of the things, and you can, you can check me out, go through the book of Acts and, and look it up. One of the things, Cassandra, that convinced them that, that the Gentiles could have the same experience that they had is when they heard the Gentiles speaking in other tongues, when they got filled with the Holy Ghost. Same experience they had on the day of Pentecost. Are you with me? And, and, and they couldn't deny that they were having the same experience, but there were some who had the audacity to think that, that they had a patent on God. Nobody has a patent on God. No nationality has a patent on God. God, amen, loves all of us. And he ignores our national difference, nationality. When I say national difference, I'm talking about nationalities. Amen. The Holy Spirit uh, is it, not a respect to a person. God also ignores social differences. Are y'all with me? See, what we got to realize in the sight of God, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile when it comes to condemnation or when it comes to salvation. Uh, you, me- you remember Romans, the 10th chapter, uh, and we used to read it at revival time all the time. It says, uh, um, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He says, for I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, which was wrapped up in Jesus Christ, died on the cross of Calvary for our sin, being buried and resurrected the third day morning with all power and heaven up to his hand. And if we believe that, then now that puts us in right standing with God. They were ignorant of that. 
And they went about establishing their own righteousness, their own way of trying to be right before God, keeping certain holy days, dressing uh, certain ways, not eating certain meats, and, 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 and thinking that that made them right before God. They were ignorant of God's righteousness, went about trying to establish their own righteousness, and did not submit themselves into the righteousness of God, which was Jesus Christ down on the cross for their sins, buried and resurrected the third day morning. Okay, you follow me? They were ignorant of God's righteousness. So when we look at this, uh, we got to realize that 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 God, Amen, uh, it saves us by grace, Amen. From the human human point of view, when you look at it from a human point of view, it seems like God chooses the poor instead of the rich. But that's not necessarily the case. But what God will do is this: God will take that thing which seems to be weak and use it. So that no flesh can get glory in his presence. As a matter of fact, I, I love this passage. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27 right quick. Hurry, hurry, hurry. And I think I'm about to stop on this one. And we'll pick up on 3 and 4 next week. Okay? All right? Y'all with me? J, uh, look, at, look at this. Watch this. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that fear of you were wise in the world's eyes. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he's telling the church at Corinth, he says, fear you were a uh, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. How many of y'all can say, uh, you know, yeah, I'm in that category, Pastor. I wasn't considered to be wise according to the world. I wasn't considered to be wealthy according to the world's standard. I may have a little of something, something. I got a little savings account, but I'm not wealthy by any means. Go Back up, back up. Watch it. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you, few of you, few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. I want to I want to see the hands of everybody here who you were considered to be powerful and wealthy according to the world. You were considered to be smarter than Einstein when God called you. I wasn't. I was just a little old boy from Benton, Louisiana, who got a finance degree from Louisiana Tech in Russell, Louisiana, was working in banking when God called me. I wasn't considered to be, I wasn't considered to be powerful, and sure enough, I wasn't wealthy. I'm Paul and Moselle Adamson. He was a mechanic and she was a factory worker. Amen. So, so I wasn't considered to be wealthy. But guess what? Here's what God will do. God will take that person who seems to be insignificant, take that person. Amen. Put his Holy Spirit on the inside of them, begin to use them in powerful ways to just discombobulate those folks in the world who think they're wise. And they'll begin to see this person make significant impact in the world and wonder how in the world could that person from that place, with that lack of skill sets, do what they're doing? Everybody say, but God. Watch this, watch this. Verse 27, I got to stop on this one. Watch this, watch this. It says, instead, Watch this. God chose things the world considers foolish. Why'd he do it? In order to shame those who think they're all smart. I just, that's, my term, that's my interpretation. Who think they're so smart? Who, 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 who think that they got all this book knowledge, they're a doctor in this. And that, he, he chose the foolish things in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are what? Look at the next verse. Watch this, watch this. God chose things despised by the world. Everybody say, that was me. 
things counted as nothing at all, say that was me, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers to be important. Now, why did he do it? Why did he do that? I want to know why he did it. Next verse 10. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. The KJV says, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. He takes stuff that's insignificant, powers. He, t- he takes the few. All, all throughout scripture, he used a remnant. Told Gideon, get rid of all those men. Some, some of them scared, send them home. They scared, send them home. And he got down to how many? Was it 300? He got down to 300 and went to battle with 300 men. But you know what? When God is in the middle of 300, 300 can beat 400,000. And that's exactly what happened. So when those 300 beats 400,000, you can't give nobody credit but God. Can I get a witness? And sometimes in your life, God wants to use you who people don't think don't amount to very much at all. He'll use you to transform this world so that he can get the glory out of your life. That's what he does. And I'm out of time. But I will see y'all Sunday morning, right? Get a Lord a hand of praise. God bless you.